Welcome to The Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. My name is Paul Lanigan, and in each episode, my goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished sales and business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. So grab a coffee, a notebook and pen, and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Alan Boyle. And here's what some of his colleagues say about him. We were fortunate to be introduced to Alan as we embarked on an ambitious growth plan. His determination and hands-on approach helped us enormously. We can't thank Alan enough with all the help he gave us in scaling up our business. Here's another one. Alan was great at challenging the status quo. Alan Boy, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul, and thanks for the lovely introduction. It's not often you get to rehear your testimonials, so <laughs> thanks so much. Yeah, well, they're all yours. I take no credit for them. They're all yours. <laughs> you're very welcome. Alan, I don't have to be a genius. I can tell by the accent. You were born far away from these shores. Want to tell me a little bit about where you grew up and maybe a little bit of what that was like? Absolutely. A bit of a mixed story. I was born in France to a South African father and an Irish mother. And then a few years after that, moved to South Africa where I grew up, my formative years. And we did move around a little bit. So I've lived in Johannesburg. I've lived in Durban. I've lived in Cape Town. And uh, shortly after school and a little bit of work, I traveled. This is my second innings in Ireland. So my first innings, if you want to use cricket terms, was, was 2000 to 2008. And the second one was 2018, where we decided to return to Ireland after being back in Cape Town for nine years. So that's my short story. Okay. A couple of things. One, you said we, I'm assuming there was something happened in your first time here that meant you came back again. Other than I, I did. I met my wife in back in 2001 and I was able to convince her to go back to South Africa. We had nine great years in South Africa and we decided, again, she's one of six and just with the family and the cousins in Ireland, it made sense for us to head back this direction. Now you said, I think you said South African father, Irish mother. Yes. Did I get that right? Your name is Boyle. Yes. <laughs> but it's not your typical Afrikaans name. No, not at all. No, dad's background, I think it goes back UK, Scotland. So it was probably one of the one of the Boyles that left Donegal and made their way to Scotland way back when. So it's quite interesting. So Alan Boyle is a good Irish name, but uh, the Irish side of me is my mum. Interesting, interesting. But tell me, I, I've only been to South Africa a couple of times and again it was work, so I didn't get to, to see much of it. What is it like as a place to grow up in when you compare and contrast, say, what your kids are experiencing in Ireland? How is it different? How was it different for you? Look, I think everyone knows about the challenges in South Africa and that South Africa came through apartheid and there's been a lot of challenges in the country even currently. We were very privileged growing up in, in South Africa. So lots of summer barbecues, we call them brais, lots of walking around barefoot, lots of holidays by the sea. We were one part of the population. There were a lot of people that weren't as privileged. So yeah, and growing up in South Africa was absolutely amazing for us. Every school had a swimming pool. I was very involved with water polo back then. It's a rugby country. It's a cricket country. So sports is very much knitted into our culture. And it was fantastic. The sunshine is amazing. We would, a story of my brother and I, when we were kids, we'd go down to visit my grandfather. He lived a few blocks away from the beach, a little place called Simonstown in the Western Cape. And as kids, we used to go and play on our own on the beach. I'd be more than seven years old, eight years old. My brother would be about five or six. 
and we'd go and play on our own down at the beach. And at lunchtime, you know, my grandfather would ring the bell up at the house, which is probably maybe a five-minute runaway. And we used to, the first one to get to the garden in time for our lunch would get the warm hose pipe. So the hose pipe would be lying in the garden and it would be heated by the sun. And we always had to be rinsed off before we went for our lunch. And that's just our childhood, playing on the beach on our own. The bell would ring, we'd run up and have lunch, we'd come back and we'd spend the rest of the day playing. I suppose much like you'd see an island back in the days where people were having their summers and just gone for the whole day, not connected to devices like they are now. Like Ireland without the sun. Like Ireland without the sun, although there's days where it can be absolutely beautiful. I mean, I've holidayed down in Kerry and Connemara and other places, and there's weeks of perfect weather where you just want to roof this country. But uh, yeah, I'll be honest, the sun, the lack of sun at times does get me down. The, these three months in Dublin where the, the grey clouds just come overhead and stay is can be a bit depressing at times. Tell me, what would I need to know about you as a kid that would help me understand who you are today? Wow. An absolute passion for reading and being curious. So as it, we grew up reading, and it's so amazing now to see my daughter just loving books so much. And I was always at the library, always, always buying books. And uh, just this passion for reading. I mean, even okay. now with a very busy schedule, I try and get through one or two books a week if I can. That came from, from the very early years. But friends probably would have seen me as the guy in the middle of the pack, fitted in with everybody, got on with everybody. I wasn't a top sports person. I was definitely not a top academic person. I can get into some detail around that. But generally, in all around, I didn't get into a huge amount of trouble most of the time. Got on with everybody. You'd see me, as a kid, you'd see me on, on a BMX bike or on the beach and have, uh, just enjoying not being at school, I suppose. And I know recently you did, or you're still doing this... I don't know what you call it, 12 peaks, but you're going and you were down in Carantool and you climbed that and Crowpatrick. Where's that coming from? Okay, so that's, and thanks for bringing it up. It's the 10,000 meter challenge. It's a challenge I set myself this year to raise money for the university I went to, Stellenbosch University, to, they, they've recently established a school of data science and computational thinking. So all this stuff you're seeing at the moment, this artificial intelligence, these large language models and everything you're seeing at the moment, this push for new technology, that's all computational thinking. And um, Selimosh are have set up a school around that. And I look at that as this future skills that we need. Unemployment in South Africa is around 30%, probably a little bit more at this stage. And we need to ve develop these key skills in that country. So I work with tech scale-ups. That's the business I'm in. I consult to tech scale-ups and I'm not a developer or anything anywhere near an expert in computational thinking. I think that's a future skill and I want to give back to that. And Stellenbosch was a university that gave me a little bit of a chance. I finished school I, as a child and maybe just dialing it back a little bit. I always wanted to be an architect. Like the only thing I wanted to do from the age of eight was to be an architect. And I used to build houses with Lego. I used to draw plans all the time and always design the next extension that my parents would be doing. And then we moved a lot. So we were always flipping homes and buying older homes and doing them up and then selling them. So I got that from that. But unfortunately during school, my academics took a turn for the worse. I wasn't very good at maths. I couldn't really get my school leaving maths and I couldn't get the subjects I needed for architecture. So I went into different areas and it was in my mid thirties, I got an opportunity to, to do an MBA at Stellenbosch. And I was a wild card entry because normally they would take somebody with an undergrad degree 
And I went into Stellenbosch almost as a wild card because I was working at the time as a senior vice president for global sales for a company. And I'd had a lot of management experience that I'd built up over the years. So they kind of said, well, hang on, this guy's coming in as a bit of a wild card. I had to learn leaving maths in order to get into the program. And during that MBA program, you're doing statistics and equations and a few financial type courses, which I struggled with, but got through. So yeah, interesting. And I might've struggled as a child or as a teenager, certainly something that with the right ambition and the right drive, you can overcome later in life. So I think on that basis, I felt that college education that I got in my mid thirties or that, that masters that I achieved, I wanted to give back to, to Stellenbosch and that, that drove the 10,000 peak jet challenge. And just in short, 10,000 meters, I'm not exactly climbing Everest, but I'm climbing 10 great peaks around the UK island and South Africa, raising money for data science bursaries. And uh, yeah, I've got two, two done already. We've done Ben Nevis. We've done Karen Tool. I'm doing Lugnaquilla in the next week or two, and then one up in Northern Ireland, Sleeve Donard, and there's a few others. So if anybody wants to donate to that, here's a little plug, throw some money in. It'd be great. It's a fantastic way to raise money. Not alone is it just a really healthy way of doing it, but what also strikes me is if I'm doing, you said 10 peaks, right? Is that now that's 10 opportunities to go back out and tell your story rather than a one-off. I don't know if you did that on, that was intentional, but that's really smart. Yeah. Somebody actually came back to me and said, I see what you're doing here. <laughs> In terms of I work with tech companies and I'm raising money for data science and it's over the course of a year. So I get the opportunity to tell the story a little bit, but yeah, I think, but my company Saltwater Consulting is going to give, is going to match donations we receive from everyone else that's, that's willing to throw some money in. And yeah, it is an opportunity to also talk about something different. I'm using LinkedIn, I'm using some of the channels and I'm talking about operational excellence and I'm talking about scaling and I'm talking about series A and series B and all of these fancy things, but just to give the audience something different and hold up a camera and say, listen, I'm on the top of the mountain, we're raising some money and it's getting a bit of traction, which is nice. And so I, I am enjoying it. Yeah. Now, before you started your own consulting business, you had quite a successful career in the corporate space. Can you tell me, give me some of the highlights of that, and if you could speak to where you've gotten your greatest sense of accomplishment for, from in that journey. A mixed career. I mean, I think if I spent some time in Saudi Arabia with the Citibank when I first got into IT. At the time, we were doing a migration from one platform to the others. I'd be showing my age now, but we were moving from Novell to NT. So back in the days, that was quite a thing. And then I spent some time in Ireland, spent about eight years within, working within the financial services sector, running IT and virtualization. And I think that was quite a nice accomplishment because when I came in, I was this upstart from South Africa. And I remember one of the guys back then, it was 2001, saying, we've got, we don't have anything to hang our hat on. We don't know who you are. You just, you hopped off the boat and we don't know what you're capable of. It was quite funny just the way they said it. I didn't take any offense to it, but they gave me an opportunity to consolidate a bunch of buildings and bring all the IT together. And they set up the, their head office in Buddhistan. And the project ran well. And they said, well, look, you've done the job well. We want you to be our group IT manager. And over time, as I progressed through that, I spent eight years with the company IFG. And over time, you move from being the IT guy with a spanner in your pocket, fixing computers and printers to being a bit more strategic and helping them virtualize and helping them get ready for the cloud and helping them leverage new technology. And then that led me back to South Africa where I got into sales for the first time. And that again was an accomplishment. I used to go to all these networking events and stand in the corner 
I didn't exactly want to put myself out there. But because I had all this technical experience, moving into a sales role with technical experience, selling to IT managers and CIOs was actually a breakthrough. So rather than coming in as a pure salesperson trying to pitch to people, I was coming in as somebody that actually I could empathize with them. I'd spent 24 hours in an office rebuilding a backup or rebuilding of crashed systems. So I could completely explain to them that moving their workloads from their on-premises site to the cloud was quite a thing. So as a result, I succeeded quite quickly in sales. But then some of the leadership elements came through from before as well. And it got me into a sales management role where I could actually build a team. And that's fast forward into coming back to Ireland where I joined AWS, Amazon. And it was a pure operational role in the support side, running a number of global programs. So instance and escalation management, working with partners and helping the partners provide a high level of AWS support. So I think everything is culminated into different types of accomplishments and achievements. I learned sales through being good at IT. I learned operations through being working with a lot of IT folks through the sales and all of that sort of culminated. I think that's what brought me to Saltwater Consulting where I realized that operations is actually very important and that businesses can really unlock value if they get their operations right. And uh, yeah, I also like the sales element. So for me to go into a company and highlight the benefits of imp improving their operations and then helping them with the delivery of some of those operations is uh, it's fulfilling. And I would see my current role and what I'm doing the three years since I started the business as being one of the big accomplishments. Where do you find yourself most at home in, in terms of all the different departments that exist within a business and where you've worked in? Where would you f say your natural home is? I think inf influencing and influencing change. So I think the natural, are you talking about specific to being sales or operations or an engineer or? Yeah, well, you have experience in operations, in sales. And I'm just curious because they're quite different and some skills don't always transfer. And I I'm, 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 suppose I'm, I'm transferring in my own mind where I would find a natural home or be more comfortable. I was just curious to know where you were most comfortable. I think there's that element of being the expert generalist and being able to be involved in various different, uh, different elements. I don't think I'd be most comfortable trying to aggressively close a deal, a sales deal. I think having an account management, helping a customer through success would be a comfortable area. I don't think I'd be an absolute operations type person where you're absolutely delivering, looking at metrics and scorecards every single day, helping customers build that and creating the platform for them to write, have the right operations. It's good for me. So I think that's where I talked about the persuasive piece, going in there and saying, right, here, selling them on the vision of this is why operations are so important and then giving them the systems and the way to actually implement the operations. I think that for me is where I fit. So I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily call myself a jack of all trades, but at the same time, I think it's nowadays all the skills count, right? So I, I don't, I, where I'd, I know, certainly know where I'd be least effective and that's writing code. I think that's where I'll be asking an AI robot to write code for me or do something like that because I cannot write code and I cannot do SQL scripts and all of these things that you need to be very technically capable. I know my way around a spreadsheet but I wouldn't be writing macros in that spreadsheet. So technically, and the analysis side, um, that's where I would fall over. But certainly, certainly, 
helping companies get on the bus, helping them, helping drive a vision through for companies is important. And that requires sales, it requires a bit of delivery as well. Yeah. With, with such a successful career, why did you leave that to set up your own business? What was the great drive in you to do that? So up until I joined AWS, I'd worked in smaller companies. I'd worked in companies under a thousand people. I'd worked in companies that were growing quite quickly. The most fun I had in my career was at an internet service provider in South Africa. And we worked from around 30 people to 150. And I saw the business change and all the foundational pieces that were required for that business to scale. And they've grown beyond that now at this stage. And I think coming back to Ireland and having the tech experience and having worked in cloud and everything, it made sense to, to join a multinational. And I learned a lot. I mean, I spent some time at AWS and I would consider if you look at all the big tech companies out there, the most operational of them all, the one that looks at metrics the most closely is Amazon. And they learned so much there. And they also, they use their values really well. They've got 14 leadership principles and they use these leadership principles in every single thing they do. You rarely have a conversation, even with a meeting, even at a water cooler, you'd rarely have a conversation where the values, the leadership principles aren't raised. So I've seen the benefit of how quickly a company that big can move using their principles and using really clever mechanisms. Like they've, they've got narrative writing and very clever reporting tools. And I thought, hang on, there's a real opportunity for some of these mechanisms and some of what I've learned before and the fact that I've worked in different countries, worked in different cultures, there's a real good opportunity to bring that to scale-ups. And I, I just thought at the time, I joined AWS at 42 or 43 years of age. And I just thought to myself, wow, if I joined AWS maybe a little bit younger, it might've been a slightly different experience. But at 42, it was, this is a big organization and it's quite tricky to navigate these big organizations and you're on planes all the time. And it was two and a half years. It was like a fire hose and a roller coaster at the same time. And there was a huge amount of learning, but I just felt most comfortable working with scale-ups. And I thought, hang on, there's a lot of opportunity here to actually teach other companies how to fish, teach other companies how to do it, and almost operate as if they're a large organization, working well, but still stay agile. And that's when I decided I can go back and help these companies and I can bring some of my corporate experience and my previous experience to these companies. And, and that's why I started. I started the business in, on the 20th of March, 2020. So most people would say, what? the hell are you doing, Al? Why did you do that? And I think that's, that was actually good because that was when everything was getting locked down. Everyone was taking a pause and it gave me the pause I needed, having had a busy few years to, yeah. to build and to think about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. So that by the time I got my first customer six months later, I three months later, I got my first customer. By the time I started working, getting through some of the work with them, I had a good idea of where I wanted to go and how I wanted to do it. Before we get to Saltwater, I have one final question for you. You mentioned Amazon's 14, 14 principles of leadership. Can you talk to me about one or two that resonated most with you that you felt were your go-to values that you felt stood out for you? Sure. The one that immediately, as you said that, is they've got a principle or they had a principle, they change them from time to time, is disagree and commit. And what that basically means was a lot of leadership teams think that they need to make decisions by consensus. And I think what Amazon really values is that everyone has different opinions and you should have a different opinion. Now, a decision has to be made. So bringing your opinion in may be very different to what everyone else is thinking. 
So the leadership principle there was that you were going to disagree, but you're going to commit. Because a lot of times in organizations, you put a whole lot of work into going one way and everybody else is going that way. What happens? You start forming grudges, silos start forming, you get upset, you say, yeah, but I told you so, and you don't commit to going in that direction. And I think that's something that makes that business move very quickly is, yes, people can bring their opinions and they can share insights, but if they choose to go in a different direction, they commit to it fully. They get right behind it and there's no grudges, there's no anything. It's almost like draw a line in the sand and move forward. So disagree and commit for me was was a really good one. And there's a, there's a bunch of others. I mean, I think their customer obsession was completely obsessed about customers. There's stories from the early Amazon days of, I think, Jeff Bezos having an empty chair in the boardroom with his senior executives and the empty chair was for the customer. And I've always tried to advocate for the customer as much as possible. And it was, yeah, like always. I mean, like even as an operations director, if I would walk into a help desk, into my support team and the phone was ringing, I'd walk straight up without any context and pick it up and say, hi, can I help you? Or if a customer was really upset, I would grab an engineer from the floor and say, let's go and visit this customer. Let's drive out there and see what the problem is. We can't solve this over the phone. So I would always go above and beyond for customers. And I think that customer obsession is another principle that's important. And actually, the principle was quite interesting because there was one of these documents. We have to write these narrative documents in order to get initiatives over the line. And I wrote a narrative document, a great idea around a partner program that I was trying to deliver. And I started the document at the top with all the financial pieces. This is how much money we're going to save. This is how much money it's going to make. This is how much margin there's going to be. And my manager at the time, pushed back and said, you're not thinking about the customer. You, your document is centering around the money that this company is going to make and not about the benefit to the customer. So even though I would see myself as customer obsessed, the process that I tried to take to get an initiative over the line was financially driven around the company. And it's that's the principle being used in play. Not everybody lives their values every day or their principles every day, but I wasn't obviously living this principle that day. So I realized, and very quickly I thought, hang on, we've got to advocate for our customers. So it changed the way I wrote that document. That's quite that's a fine example. That's, yeah. yeah, no, it really is because you were appealing to the internal stakeholders because you had to influence them. But then there's this higher order value that's also influencing them that you have to speak to first and get that right before you go in with the rational argument, if you like. Interesting. And the other one about the disagree and come in, I would imagine that's extremely hard to do that there's a lot that goes into that because if people, if you feel heard and you feel that there's a rationale behind, even if it's not your dis, your choice, I, you can go along with that. But if you rock up, give your opinion and you're not heard, then it's much easier to go inside and sabotage it later on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so powerful because, you know, it it, it allows people in the room to speak up. So if they create a culture of, we know we don't want consensus here. We actually want your opinions. And we know that we may not necessarily go the direction. We, will, we, we need to be aware of the opinions. And it's really good. It's not easy. It requires training. I mean, again, when you onboard at a company like Amazon, the leadership principles are a key component. And it can take months to get some of them properly learned, if that makes sense. But they put a huge emphasis into it, training around it, having conversations around it, bringing it up in examples in every document that's written. So it's very powerful. And I think 
the default for companies is, oh, we don't want to upset anybody. You know, we're in a boardroom. If I share my opinion, I'm going to get shot down or I'm not going to be heard anyway. But it forces people to get heard. And that difference in opinions also makes for a better solution at the end of the day because you want these different views, which is interesting. It is. You mentioned earlier about Lego and what, and more importantly, what you did with Lego. So there was, you were talked about building extensions in designing them in your head and drawing them out and then do it using the Lego to build them. That speaks to me as somebody who's got a very strong creative streak, but also a desire to, for structure and to build something. How have those values informed what you do with salt water? Yeah, I think, okay, there's a bit of Lego behind me and I am a bit into Lego. There's, if you look down below, there's Lego architecture everywhere. Quite like the idea of building blocks. And again, I saw this at Amazon. You've got a, you've got a cloud computing company with lots of different building blocks. You can build a website, you can put your data up there, you can network your data across different pieces. They're all building blocks that can be configured in any different way. So there are constraints around how you put those blocks together, but they but you can do anything with it. And I think, yeah, I don't think from a creative perspective, what I like, what I really like about the Lego is following the plans, actually. So going through the plan, you it's the same with building an IKEA item a bunk bed or something like that. You've got this plan. You've got to follow the plan. You've got all the bits t- to get it right. If you go off the plan, you're not going to build it properly. So I quite, the structural piece is probably comes along with a lot strong, stronger than the cultural piece. If I had to say that, it, the plans are important. I think this is what I'm bringing into saltwater consulting with the Lego and all the structure is the operational playbooks, writing down your processes. And I use Lego as an example. I say, if you want to build Lego and you've got a whole lot of blocks there, You've got a whole lot of people in an organization. You've got a whole lot of things you want to do. If you have the operational playbook, it'll explain to you exactly how you can execute. And I think a lot of companies are really good at getting their strategy ready and saying, this is the market we want to go into. This is what we want to do. When it comes to the execution of that strategy, they struggle. And that's because of the lack of the plan or the lack of the structure. So it's be creative, but put structure into it so that you can implement. Can you define for me in as much detail as is relevant who your ideal customer is, your ideal customer profile. Yeah, sure. So ideal customer for me is, in, in it's a technology company that's growing quickly, okay? They've got product market fit, they're established. So I'm a big believer in when you're a startup and you're busy trying to get your product market fit and you're trying to get your revenue, you have to be scrappy. You do what it takes to get the investment to get the customers over the line. If that means paying your engineers and beer and pizza or your co-founders, do that. If it means micromanaging, do that. You've got to get product market fit and you've got to get some traction and revenue. So I think a startup is not my ideal customer. Giving them structure is taking away their creativity. You don't, they don't need it. And again, startups typically operate, if you look at span of control, a founder, a co-founder, even with 10 engineers and it can move very quickly. They know how each other think. There's tribal knowledge. Once you get beyond a startup and you get, you, you're moving and you're more established, let's say, for example, you've moved through a pre-seed or a seed and you're now at a series A. Now you need to start spending that money and building out your business. You've got your product market fit. So at that point, you're probably 30 people or more. You're starting to put some of your individual contributors into management roles or higher end managers. 
you're starting to break away from just having an engineering team or a product team and you're starting to develop your sales capabilities. You're also starting to bring some services that you would have previously outsourced in-house. So you're bringing HR in-house, you're bringing marketing in-house. And that's my ideal customer. It's when the founder needs to get out of the engine room and they need to become a CEO. And to become a CEO, they need to start thinking externally, shareholder value, stakeholder value, growth strategy, but they need to start empowering their teams. And a lot of founders need to be involved in every little bit of their startup. But when they get to scale up, they now need to start empowering the teams to start building. So, so they almost need to be moving this flywheel around, but everybody else is doing the work. And that's where my ideal customers. So if to break that down, they, they would have traction, they would have product market fit, they've got revenue, they're around 30 people or more because, and they're growing. And that's where I could come in and add the operational value to them. So if we were to call that the post-scrappy phase, how would a founder know that they were in that, at the edge of scrappy needing to move into the next phase? What would they observe? What would they see in their business that would tell them, okay, it's time now to operationalize this? I think when they start having to really understand their org chart or who they want to bring in, so they're looking to bring in different teams, I think... When the decision-making, every single decision is coming to them and they're a bottleneck and they're realizing that there's just no time in the day and that, it, that they're actually holding decisions up. They're stopping decisions from being made. When three or four people are always getting their initiatives off the ground, but the rest of the business is not, when the goals are not being met, I think they will, they'll start seeing that they actually need to start managing the team and getting the team to start delivering. And I think they realize that they can't actually go and solve every single problem and the decisions grow beyond what they're capable of. That's when they need to put some operational rigor in. And the whole idea around operational rigor is to help make more effective decisions and to help the others on the team to make decisions as well to get things moving forward. My sense is, and I would imagine this is a real danger, is that for your typical founder is that because the, their every day is spent in that scrappy phase, that it can almost become their identity. In fact, even before it, that might be rolling around in the every in the muck of every day, maybe something that they really enjoy. They get a kick out of scrappiness. What do they need to listen out from in terms of investors, customers, staff that tells them that if they don't move out of this phase, they're going to be in real trouble? Talk me through those different if you like angles that are sectors that I'd need to listen to and what am I listening for? Look, founders very quickly, at different stages, there's different pressures on them, right? So, mm. and the investors will be giving them a clear idea to that they need to grow. We've given you a chunk of money. We want you to get to the next stage. If you're at series A and you've got product market fit, it's likely that the money that they give you is to hire sales and start building out more capabilities in country. Once you start moving to series B, it's going to be starting to move capabilities into new territories. You know, the good examples of companies in Ireland that have started, they've got their first round of funding, they've got some good customers, and now they're moving offshore and they get some more funding, and that's a whole new ballgame. They're hiring business development executives in the US. So I think what founders start, what starts happening is they're realizing that their report ups, when they report up every month to their investors, they need to be reporting on meeting certain goals 
And these goals are a lot harder to achieve because you're dealing with a cross-section of people. You're dealing with different teams. So I think what they need to look out for is when they start seeing arguments forming between sales and engineering, for example. So the engineers want to move fast and break things and do releases every day. Sales want a stable product that they can bring out to their customers. Sales need very good technical documents. The engineers are focusing on build, build, and not necessarily too worried about the quality and necessarily the documents. I'm generalizing here, but when you start seeing that, or you start seeing marketing spending everywhere, but not necessarily spending on a focused target customer, because again, as they've moved, cycled through, they probably their customers has, may have changed, depending on the business. I think they need to start looking at incident management. So again, when you're small with a small base of customers, if you go down, there's a bit of forgiveness in that. You could have five hours of an outage, but when you've got customers across multiple time zones, you don't have those windows potentially to have an outage and an outage gets noticed or you can't bring down your system in the middle of the night to run an update when you're, you've got customers on the other side of the world. So I think when they start seeing those challenges and they realize, hang on, there's a lot more decisions to be made here. There's a lot more potential things that can break and there's a lot more customers that could get impacted. I think that's when they start saying, we need to build some mechanisms into the business. And while I, as a founder, while I might like to be scrappy and in the weeds, I realize I can't be everywhere. So if I go into the weeds on one thing and my focus is down there, I'm going to forget some of the strategic objectives that I'm going after. So naturally, they'll, it'll happen. The pressures will come to them naturally. I think what they may even hire an op operations, they'll hire an operations person at a certain size. So again, most companies would start, you've got very much IT heavy people, particularly in the tech scale-ups, building. And then they'll bring their operations people in and they'll start building out operations. Then they'll bring sales and chief revenue officers in. Then they'll bring legal and other services in. And I think as they bring more of these services in, the problems will start coming up naturally. And then they'll realize, hang on, we, I cannot deal with every single one of these decisions. Does that make sense? It does make perfect sense. What I'm curious about is you talked about them maybe bringing in an, operationals per, an operation person. Why would they bring you in versus, say, bringing in some a, a, a CEO who's going to put all that structure in place? I think, I think it's the age old, and this is again where the technical startups may not necessarily want to bring consultants in. But you know, you will have your in-house legal, your in-house HR, but you'll still work with external providers, external recruiters. It's the same way an operations manager might have grown up in the business through the different phases of growth. And they may just need to get external help in just to help them get an initiative over the ground. So a COO of a company may want to implement a dashboard and may want to implement some metrics, but they might bring somebody in to help them just get that over the line. Because sometimes externally, one thing I do when I work with teams is I do a, an operational health check. So I look at the areas where there's alignment and where there isn't. And I work through the COO and the CFO and the various different people in the organization, and I get a score, but I can very quickly see where there's alignment and where there isn't. So even the best COO in the world is with the best systems in place, there's going to be areas where there may not be that full alignment. And again, I can work with them and say, here's where I can come in and help you get over the line with that. Because it's up to them. And again, it's, being, it's more and more important now for operations folks to drive the culture of the business and to help drive culture. And that's not ping pong tables and pool tables and stuff like that. That's making sure that meetings are run well, that engineers get on very well with the sales folks, 
that they're making decisions very quickly. So they're having to do a lot of these different things and have multiple activities as part of their remit. And bringing in external help just to help them get certain projects over the line or help certain projects get moved along is pretty powerful. So I go into companies and, and run a stop, start, continue, a very simple retrospective and go to different people in the organization and say, what should we start doing, stop doing, continue doing? And sometimes when you're outside the organization and you're chatting to people, they let their guard down a bit and they can say, okay, and this is what I'd love to do. This is where I'd love to see the company going. And I can just take that outside view and reshare it internally to the team. And I think they talk about consultants saying, what do they do? They, you ask somebody for the watch and then you sell it back to them to tell them the time. I forget that analogy, but I think people have heard it before. And, and they're saying, well, why should we bring a consultant? And they're just going to tell us what we already know. But that's exactly why you bring it in because they know that, but they're just not necessarily sure how to implement and if they hear it another time. So I think that's the angle. Would you describe yourself more of a catalyst or an accelerant? I think catalyst. I think your founders are the ones that have the vision. They're moving. They can move as fast or slow as they want. But the catalyst for change, going in there and saying, have you thought about what you would do if you could get these two teams talking? Or what you could do? So, so one of the big things that happens when companies get beyond a certain size, particularly move into different countries, is silos, communication silos fall. And you can go into the company and say, they may even put their hands up and say, there's a whole lot of silos in our org. Our people are operating as silos. The catalyst for change is, it, it would be me coming in and saying, every single conversation I would have would be, and this is how you could share information with the other team. Or I was just working on a document now with a client. They need to get a, an initiative over the line. They need to buy a very expensive bit of software. It's going to cost money. If they don't buy the software, they're going to have to hire five people to do the job. But the justification for that software requires a bit of thought. And they're busy writing a document to justify this, like a business plan. And I said to them, you know, you're in the IT services part of the business, but you need to go and get some numbers into this business plan from the finance team. So share with them that you're building this document and that you need to get IT sign off. And again, by getting that person to bring in people from every part of the organization into their plan and getting buy-in on that plan, when they take that plan up to the CTO, to the IT director, and say, we've worked with finance, with legal, with the call center teams, and we've all thought about this collectively, and that helps get over the line. And that, in effect, is breaking down those silos, stopping people from operating in silos by just getting that collaboration on that single document. And that, in my mind, is being a catalyst for change, not necessarily an accelerant, but driving that change of behavior. Sounds to me also like you're operating like a periscope where you're helping them see past the weeds of the everyday operation to... It's, to me, it reminds me of that old story of somebody's in this woods and they're busy knock, chopping down trees and somebody climbs up this tree and says, hang on a second, guys, wrong forest. They're really busy doing the everyday, but maybe not in the right place. And it needs somebody who's going to sometimes ask the very intelligent questions. Sometimes they're dumb questions. That's what it seems to be. It's, I think it's, it's almost like an operational culture. You're asking the questions that shine a spotlight into the blind spots of yeah. the everyday operation. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and again, sometimes it's a very simple question. I was chatting to a company a couple of weeks ago and they want to build a new program. And they've got investors that, that do similar programs. So 
it's a scaling type of program. And uh, the question I asked them is, why do you want to build this program? The companies that, that, are, that, that are your partner companies, are they not doing a good job in delivering this? And they turned around and said, we've never thought about it like that. We know we need to build the program. We will build the program. We're going to need your help, hopefully, to do the program. But we've never thought about that question. And by thinking about that question, it allows them to better justify why they want to do what they want to do. What motivates you most in life? We work with companies to help them with their vision and find out what that North Star is. And again, it's that case of the cobbler's shoes. You help companies do it, and then you think, hang on, what about yourself? And I did this exercise a number of years ago. I wanted to find my why. I, did, I went through the Simon Sinek exercise. I hired a coach. We spent a whole day. We told, I told 10 different stories around everything. Stories that I spoke to you about a little bit earlier about playing on the beach and things like that. And I got very clear on my why. And my why is to create the space to help others grow. And I realized that's a big why and it's a great why that I can, I can build everything around. And I look at the 10,000 meter challenge that I'm doing to raise money for students to, to get computer science degrees. I look at teaching companies how to fish the scale-ups, giving them the space they could step back from that busyness and actually make better decisions. And everything I do centers around creating the space to help others grow. And I think that's my big motivator at the moment. And again, it's, it's brought into my family life. It's brought into how much space can I create to help my daughter grow and things like that. So I think, yeah, it's, that, that would be a big motivator in my mind, Paul. Where do you think that comes from, Alan? Again, back to that example I used earlier around school, I was prevented from becoming what I wanted to be at school. So that space might've been taken away from me. I, I, the fact that mathematics was taken away from me and well, I wasn't given that opportunity to finish it prevented me from growing. So I'm sure I had a big part to play with that. I was a little bit lazy at school. I would have preferred to surf waves on the beach than to go to school. But I think maybe it's that and saying, well, I didn't realize it was a dream because I wasn't necessarily given that space to grow or that opportunity to grow. I think maybe that's what's brought it around so that when I got into to doing a master's program later in life and suddenly I was given that space, I realized I could grow. So I think maybe that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that sounds really interesting and quite profound actually when you can connect it with something in your own life because that never goes away. It's always there as a source of energy and purpose and drive. Tell me who inspires you most? Okay, I, know I, I got asked the question... Um, some time ago, I think for, a, for another interview, who would I want to be my mentor? And I think a lot of people have chosen Richard Branson. One, because he has a huge amount of fun. He, education wasn't the big part of his growth back then. And I think maybe I struggled a little bit myself with the studies, but he's created a number of valuable businesses by trusting in people and giving them the space to grow. Back to what I was saying mm -hmm. really about the space to grow. So if I had to pick an individual, he inspires me, but I think what also inspires me is people that have become great but come from very tough situations. You've seen it in South Africa. You've seen people starting companies that are getting hundreds of millions of dollars in startup funds where they didn't necessarily come from from good, from good beginnings in terms of that they struggled. The South African rugby captain at the moment, Sia Khaleesi, if you had to read his story, he didn't go to a privileged, he didn't have a privileged background and he's pretty much won a World Cup for South Africa. So when I see people, and it's not just one person, it's everybody, 
you see the leaders of Google now, you see the leaders of, of Microsoft that have come from areas where it's been a huge struggle and they've overcome almost every obstacle to get to the top role. And uh, through, through reading, through being curious, through asking questions, through determination. And I think when I see those stories, I get pretty inspired. What's it going to be like in your house if Ireland meets South Africa in the World Cup final? I support both green teams. So, but I, first and foremost, I'm a Springbok supporter. So I'll be wearing the Springbok. My daughter, who was born in South Africa and has spent equal amount of time in South Africa and Ireland now, I think is also leaning towards the Springbok camp and always will, which is great. And that's just, she's the daddy's girl. That must be that one. She says to me, dad, I'm a child of Africa. And she said, mom was born in Ireland. Dad, you were born in France. I was the only one that actually should be wearing the Springbok jersey because so, she was born in South Africa. That's interesting. But I'd love to see Ireland go all the way through. I think they deserve it. They're an absolute top team at the moment. I've been at games where they've beaten the All Blacks. I've been, they're just phenomenal at the moment. They've got such a deep bench and I wouldn't be unhappy if they won the World Cup. But if I could see both in the final in South Africa trumpet, that'd be first prize for me. Okay, that's, I'll take that. That's reasonable. In your spare time, what do you like to do? Okay, so with this 10,000 meter challenge, I'm doing a lot of hiking at the moment. So if I'm not hiking up mountains, I'm hiking, I'm doing a lot of hiking. But what I really enjoy doing is mountain biking. So when even when the weather doesn't permit, I like to get out on the mountain bikes. So I haven't done a lot of it this year so far, but with the late evenings now, getting up into the Dublin mountains after work and doing some mountain biking, absolutely love it. And have started around 2015 and upgraded the bike a couple of years ago and, and it's something that I really enjoy. So that's my spare time. And obviously travel with family and the usual stuff, sure. spending time with family. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you, but maybe it's the same answer. I don't know if when your career is done and you can choose to work if you want to, but you don't have to, what would you like to focus on? I think if I look at my plan for saltwater consulting, I'd like to get to a point, I want to help, let's say big goal is get a thousand startups or thousand scale-ups to scale well. I think I could always see myself, and maybe that's the reason I moved out of corporate and into starting my own thing. I could see myself playing some sort of advisory role and as the hair goes grayer and things like that, always being involved in something. Who knows, maybe I get connected onto a rocket ship and I can do very well out of joining one of the companies that I work with. Who knows, but I think it'll always be advisory capacity, if there's an opportunity to spend a lot of time in the sunshine, maybe out in Portugal or back in South Africa and be on the phone a couple of the times to, to companies and advise them and help them grow, that'd be fantastic. I can't see myself retiring and playing a lot of golf or any of that type of thing. I could see myself just being involved and seeing the next generations of companies. Maybe that'll head towards investment in the future. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. Two final questions. If your house were burning down and your family are safe, any pets are safe, your phone and computer are safe, but you have time to run back in and rescue one item, what would it be? I got some cufflinks from my dad. I don't even wear cufflinks anymore, but I would have got a few mementos. And from my, I've got a, a little box in the house with some very nice cufflinks that I got uh, that mean a lot to me. And a nice watch that my wife bought me shortly before we got married. And those are things that I probably... I'd go and pick up with, pick up. Everything else is really replaceable. Yeah. Okay. Good question. Good, uh, good answer. And then finally, your time on this earth is done. 
and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Yeah, so for if there was one, if there was one thing I could change and put into an education system, it I suppose it's around kids being more present and being able mm-hmm. to make the right decisions. And the one thing that comes to mind is the serenity prayer. You, if you've heard it, you could probably repeat it to me now. But I, it's along the lines of the serenity to accept what I can't change, what I can't change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think those three lines are pretty powerful. And for kids coming through, realizing, hang on, there's going to be curveballs their way. I think that in an education system is very important. And I don't think that's being taught enough. And I think the other one is basic financial acumen, just the simple pieces of compound interest, the financial acumen that a lot of people forget until it's too late. Fantastic. Alan Boyle, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And thanks for the challenging questions, Paul.